Hi, this is Don Coscarelli, director of Phantasm, the Beastmaster, Bubba Hotep. And you're listening to Without Your Head. Station of decapitation without your head. I'm Nasty Neal. I'm Tretris Trista. We're joined by Bill Oberst Jr., the return of Bill Oberst Jr., and director Mark Savage of A Painkiller, which is out now on uh, demand, uh, DVD, digital, all the various places. It's very cool to have you both here. So, uh, first of all, um, I know it's co-written, so where did the idea of Painkiller come from? Who had the idea? The inspiration for the um, going with the opioid theme was um, there's a guy who's um, I have a partnership with, with a company Delirium, and we've made a number of movies, and uh, his name's Tom Parnell, and Tom lost a 21-year-old son to an opioid overdose uh, a couple of years ago. And... Of course, devastating to him, like really the worst thing that could happen is like losing, I mean, losing your child. I mean, in the natural course of things is that, you know, you as a parent will always, of course, die before your child. So when it flips around, it's um, obviously something you don't ever get over. So Tom, still in the midst of his grief, um, had a conversation with me where we're deciding what we wanted to do next after um, Purgatory Road. We've written a number of scripts. But we wanted to do something a little lower budget. And that's what we came up with. And initially he's a little hesitant to do it because the wounds from the loss were still smarting. And he saw it as something that would help him actually deal with his grief, you know, to do something for his son. The film is dedicated to his son. So the way we went about it, the writing was 
I did a, just a, an outline, sort of outlined the structure. Then Tom wrote the first draft. Then came back to me. I did a draft. Then back to Tom. We went back and forth for a while until we had about 15 or 16 drafts. And then we also got together a number of times. He's in Florida. I'm in California. And we worked on it together. But, yeah, the idea of doing it on that focus really was inspired by Tom. Is that something hard to do when you're, you're making a movie about real themes and you know, important questions and topics? So you want that in the movie, but you also want to balance that with you're also making a movie that people can enjoy, whether that is yeah. something you know, they're there to, to, to learn about or not. That's a great point. One of the paramount things in my mind is that it's still, we still wanted to essentially make a thriller. So, you know, we didn't want it to be like, you know, for example, opioid polemic first, then thriller. We still wanted it to be, you know, um, you know, a solid thriller. And it's also a sequel, sort of unofficial sequel to another film that we'd done a couple of years earlier called Stress to Kill, where Bill played a character in that who's sort of pissed off with the world at large, like just people's rudeness, you know, things like people talking on cell phones in movies, you know, things that actually almost almost justify murder or at least getting someone blowing a dart into your neck. And so Bill's character had already expressed himself um, through the art of murder, we could say. And so it then made sense when we're debating how are we going to tell this story through what particular frame, then it became, well, why don't we take the character or a character or two from Stress to Kill because Bill had a daughter in that and nearly all the other females in the film didn't fare well, but Bill survived and his daughter survived. And we figured, well, why don't we then play on that, that in between that film getting made and getting released and now in that interim period, say four years or so, um, that's how that's when Bill lost his own daughter. So Bill, in the sense... Um, is almost like the proxy for Tom who had lost his son. So Bill became that character. And then the one other character that we brought forward for this film, as you see in the movie, is Tom Parnell, who also plays the good doctor in the movie, mm-hmm. who Bill kind of like, you know, sort of like teams up, teams up with at least um, closer to the end of the movie. So, yeah, I mean, we have to be very mindful of that. It's really important that we want to get the information about the opioids want to convey the opioid epidemic and that's why we chose to do it through a radio talk show which was um for me was kind of partially influenced by some films i love that are about the radio because i actually love the whole idea of talk radio one was the movie talk radio the oliver stone yeah, that, film i think it's a really underrated movie yeah yeah i love that film and also it's also done to some extent in george romero's martin Mm-hmm. Um, that's more the vampire calling up the radio station, which is also used to some extent. Trista would know that well in um, Purgatory Road because she's also making phone calls to someone in a radio station. So it kind of like gives an interesting outlet to, to get a character's feelings rather than, say, talking to someone else. They're actually talking to a broader audience out there. So it was a bit of a juggling act to go between, okay, it's about it's a thriller, thriller story, but at the same time, we want to convey information about the opioids. So it was a bit of a balancing act. Yeah. So how early on was Bill involved then? It had to be pretty early if you're going to use a character from a previous movie. Well, my feeling is Bill is always okay. involved in my life. Um, I love Bill. I love having Bill in my films. So, yeah, for this one, I believe, like, 
I'm not sure, I mean, Bill may be able to recall this. I'm not sure whether I told Bill it's I'm writing it and, you know, we're writing it and we're going to call you about it. I'm not sure the conversation, but it was always, it just seemed like there should not be anyone else for this role other than, other than Bill. I certainly didn't want another person playing Bill Johnson. I mean, um, you know, if anyone has seen Bill on screen, I know plenty have that, you know, Bill embodies a character, you know, like nobody else, except maybe a Trister actually. Um, so I would say that um, it, it was always like, yeah, I, I just can't imagine it without Bill. So uh, Bill, when, when uh, Mark came to you, what did you think of the, did he tell you the idea first? Did he give you the script? How did that work? No, first he just said he's writing a sequel to Painkiller. Um, and if Mark's involved, Mark is, uh, he's one of my few directorial deities. If he's involved, I want to be involved. Um, he's a dark artist and I can't say enough about his visual aesthetic. Um, he sees, Mark sees the world for what it really is. And I don't mean that in a cynical way. I mean that he sees the pain. He sees the sweat. He sees what we between us call the freakery of all the monstrosity of all human beings. But that doesn't mean that the world is ugly. The world is, I think, and I'm putting words in Mark's mouth, but the, the reason I love Mark and his work is to him, the world would be ugly if you pretended that the monstrosity did not exist. That's a hideous world because it's a false world. So if Mark was involved, I wanted to be involved. Then he came back later on with the script and I read it. And actually, my first thought was, I'm not their guy. I felt completely inadequate to do this because I, I slept in Tom's son's bedroom while he was away at college while we were shooting Stress to Kill. Um, I, I met him. I knew Tom. And he's like, this is Tom's personal pain. And I felt wholly inadequate to do the role. I felt wholly inadequate the entire time we shot. And I still have no idea that I did anything that was worthy of what should be done to honor Tom's loss and Mark's vision. Mark says he liked it and that's okay for me. But that's the other thing I like about Mark is I don't have to pretend with him to have some kind of false confidence in my work, which I don't because with Mark, I really, really want to bring his vision to life. And I always feel inadequate to do it. Uh, along those lines, and this, I don't know, maybe a hard question for you to answer, but did you talk with Tom about his feelings, you know, of, to play this character of losing a son? Yeah, yeah he was right there on set. Uh, Mark talked a lot more than I did. Um, Tom is an attorney by trade, and he is reticent and taciturn when he wants to be. So when he does open up even a little bit, it's very powerful. Don't you think so, Mark? Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah. There's times when Tom's kind of gone through a lot of different phases, um, even while he's making it. There was a couple of scenes that he just didn't even really want to uh, be there. You know, scenes, because most of the time he was there because, you know, being the co-writer of the film and, and, and executive producer, some of the times that he literally stepped away because, you know, he was uncomfortable with some of the, material um it was too painful for him but you're right as bill says like sometimes he's very open about it and other times he doesn't want to talk about it so you've just got to like pick that moment to get in there um but i felt that yeah bill engaged really well with that character bill also had some really interesting 
contributions as well. One thing I've said in several interviews that Bill's always got really, really great questions that enhance the movie. Like I can give you an example. One point he said, uh, wouldn't he blame himself somewhat for what's happened? You know, because parents tend to do that, even though even if there's no direct reason why they may have been at fault. And so we explored that in some of the dialogue when he met the female cop uh, played by Calamar Gaston in the movie, uh, where he says, why couldn't I have been, you know, um, why couldn't I have been there? I could have been a better parent. Um, Why didn't I feel her, you know, why didn't I see her pain? I mean, Bill could remember that even better than me. But that came from Bill's question, you know, about like, would he blame himself? And that's something, again, I also really enjoy about working with Bill. He has very, very good ideas, explores it both intellectually and also um, sort of from a um, almost like explores the soul, the soul of the movie as well, you know, like looks into it and sees its soul and then wants to know some answers to questions that are relevant to that. And that I think really enhances the characters. Uh, blame itself is a big part of the movie. You know, people blaming the attic, people blaming the um, the doctors, people, you know, who is to blame? And is it probably the real answer is a little bit, you know, of all these things. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Because it's not, it's it's even, there's even a couple of points when um, you, you have a couple of callers calling in saying to him, um, well, aren't these people losers? Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, can't they just read the instructions on the bottle? And um, that's definitely something that people um, often, that's another point of view that some people have. Um, and the answer to that is to, to a large extent that because of a lot of the, what's called the off-target marketing of the drugs, where, where they're, for example, giving a drug meant for, say, someone coming out of cancer, they're giving it to someone who's got like, you know, a back pain, um, the effect on that person is like it's 10 times more than what they really need, which gives them a sense of euphoria that they've never, ever had before, which then, of course, begins to cause some kind of addiction because especially if they've had chronic pain, when you're living with chronic pain, there's nothing worse. And a lot of people with chronic pain would almost rather be dead. So when they're given something like an opioid like that and it's like it gives such a explosion of euphoria, the addiction is really quick. And the drugs are designed that way, and which is, in a way, one of the most you know pernicious things about the entire industry. I mean, they they're fully aware of what these drugs do, and just because you take the pills um, in accordance with the instructions, it, it doesn't in any way guarantee you're not going to become addicted. Mm-hmm. Um, there's really good dialogue on Michael Perret when um, he says about like, well, what do you do? What do you do for someone who is in chronic pain? You know, if you you can't give them an opioid, what do you do for them? You know, it's not answered, but you know. Yeah, and Bill says, well, I wouldn't give give him a gummy bear laced with fentanyl, I believe is, is, uh, um, is the answer there. And that's because there really are gummy bears laced with fentanyl. That's not even like a creation of ours. There are gummy bears laced with fentanyl. So they've actually, the industry has also set out to make the, some of the opioids, you know, very, very attractive, almost in, um, almost, almost along the lines of candy, which is I, pretty, you know, sickening really. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tristan, do you have a question? I do. I have a bit of an aesthetic question. So I'm going to segue a bit, but I don't want you to think I don't appreciate the profundity of the film. I have a younger brother 
who passed from addiction. And I know most people have a loved one who has uh, suffered or is suffering, unfortunately. But um, my question is uh, about the design and the concept of the mask. Uh, can you talk about uh, who developed that? Yeah. Um, in a way, the chicken came before the egg with that because what happened is that I was working with a an artist friend um, from England who has done a couple of posters of mine. Um, he did um, the uh, Purgatory Road poster, the one um, with the kind of crooked truck and the priest beside. And uh, he's done a few other things too. And I was talking about a painkiller poster. And I said to him, it would be really good to have, why don't we do something? It was first like the idea of let's do something like the American flag against the street. And then he gave me that and I looked at it and then I thought, you know, something would be better to, I think, maybe have a face. And then I thought, well, maybe paint the flag on the face. And that then became, you know, could you possibly just do a face that's almost like that you've completely imprinted the American flag onto someone's face as if you tattooed their whole face? And he said, let me give that a shot. And so he then designed that and illustrated that, which I really liked. And then I was in Florida at the same time. So I then took that to this guy, Carl Huber, who was also the armorer on the movie and created the mask. And I said, here's the artwork. Can you do a mask that's just like this? And anyway, he happened to have at that time, like one of those blank masks, you know, the one that's kind of got nothing on it yet. It was kind of like sitting in his room. And it was like literally just, you know, waiting to be like, you know, way like filled. So the blank mask was there. And I said, see that mask there? Can you just basically put this mask in the artwork onto that? And so he pretty much found a way to be able to um, paint in the mask. And I said, I like it cracked because, you know, being representative of a certain um, a certain aspect of the US, I say, can you kind of crack it and put holes in it and stuff? So it's as if like it's an American flag, but it's an American flag that's kind of um, it's diseased. You know, it's got it's got some serious um, illness um, within the mask. So that's pretty much how that came to be. So there's only one mask. Uh, we only did one. So the only thing that did worry me a little bit during the movie, and I think I even had a conversation with Bill just about how we only have one and we have to be sort of be careful, you know, not to rip it, you know, not to have it like, you know, come like, um, you know, falling off and, and coming apart. But I mean, Bill may be able to tell you what it was like to actually wear that mask and how carefully he had to be with it. Um, yeah, I'm always careful of props because uh, in Abraham Lincoln versus Zombies, they made the prop master made three of those cool sides that he whips open. Number one, well, in my defense, they weren't made really to bear the weight of what they wanted me to do, which was that cool up on the hill shot. Number one, phew, there goes the side. Next day, number two, and she was like, we only have one. <laughs> we reinforce it with a screw. So, yes, I'm used to breaking props, and I was very careful with the mask. It's, it is strange to act inside a mask. I don't know if uh, Tristan's ever done this, but, yeah, it, um, it, it really forces you to think about the character because you don't have your face. In this case, I knew my voice would be distorted, so all you really have is the body movements to, to carry as a through line with the character. 
Interesting. Well, what, what did you think when you first put on the mask? And you, does that affect how, well, obviously you said acting in a mask, but just seeing it on you, how does that affect you well, how you're going to play the character? Neil, when you're lit in a good key light and you're wearing this really cool jacket and these really cool black boots and you have a six shooter in your hand and you have that mask on, you feel pretty badass. <laughs> it's hard not to. So that's, yeah. that's my answer is inexplicably, and I know it sounds kind of dumbed down, but badass. <laughs> uh, Mark, where's the mask now? It's in Tampa. Um, and um, Tom's got a storage, a little storage facility that um, it's, it's there. Um, and it's over a, um, like a foam, a foam head to keep its shape. And at one point we weren't even thinking of, because I've actually already had some requests recently of kind of like making it like one of those old style Don Post masks, you know, and actually like selling it. So I'm um, kind of think, kind of thinking about it. You know, they have, I probably, I reckon I've had about 20 people asking about it, like whether they can buy that mask at the moment. No, but you know, might be such a bad idea. I don't know. Um, I, I know very little about um, manufacturing and, and marketing masks. Mm-hmm. I I really love the idea of uh, a bunch of little vigilantes at Halloween, <laughs> little classic six shooters in the mask on. Uh-huh. <laughs> I like that. It could even be the sequel. I don't know. I'll tell you something interesting with the mask is that um, Bill, you know, did his dialogue inside the mask, and he also did dialogue outside the mask as well, which we also got as almost like a clean audio. But we ended up using the, the audio inside the mask because it was interesting. The audio inside the mask, because we had a microphone that was like almost underneath his um, chin. So it, it has interesting dynamic from, a, um, you know, from the audio point of view, the acoustic point of view. It sort of has a very guttural sound when it's in the mask. So that's why in the, mo- in the movie, it does have a weird guttural kind of like... <laughs> kind of like you know kind of like sort of sound you know like um um you know like and it really worked i remember the sound the sound guy um said to me while we're while we're doing the sound mix he said okay so this is what i've done to clean up the inside of the mask what do you think he goes it sounds like a little weird but i I, but then he said to me i know you kind of like weird so you might appreciate it you might not but i did i i thought that i said no that's the sound i'd rather use that then use the then use the clean track and just distort it because the distortion that it had on screen, the, which we finally used, just seemed like um, something kind of unique. Mm-hmm. Now I, I know you mentioned um, like talk radio and some movies that had uh, the radio on it, but did you listen to any like current podcasts or, or radio shows to get kind of an idea of what the, these kind of people would be like? Um, no, not really. Um, Downey. I think the only one that, um, you know, I mean, I listen to talk radio a lot anyway, because I, I like I like it. I like, I like all kinds of talk radio shows. I just find it a really fascinating format and just the whole idea. I don't think it's even, it's interesting. It's, it's outlasted everything. It's, it survived cable. It survived theatres. It survived television because um, there's nothing like it because it has an immediacy to it. And, I mean, so does this, of course. Um, it has an immediacy to it. And this is something amazing about it. No, because I just wanted it kind of based on a combination, I think, of, say, um, yeah, like 
I mean, there's a guy who also used to be on LA radio um, quite a bit um, named Tom Lycus, who I used to like his show quite a bit too. And um, I, I, I liked his delivery a lot. So the opening is very similar to some of the Lycus delivery in terms of the way we wrote that. Uh, but I, I just think that um, I, like the, I like the passion that Bill put into it. And I thought that, I thought that what Bill... I thought that what Bill Bill did with it was just so so great because he just he just made the he made it made it very personal like he made us feel like the war that he's fighting is something is a war that in fact that sort of impacts us all. Thought he did a really great job of that, and that's obviously so, the sort of people who I like. I mean, I also really love I love Stern. I listen to Stern a lot. I think Stern's fantastic. Um, there used to be a guy, Michael Savage, as well. Um, he was like this kind of like um, fairly like right wing sort of um, conspiracy kind of guy. But I also like his delivery. I think that delivery was also really interesting. That um, you know, and also the character in. Um, um, also, there was a, also an Australian radio guy from years ago named Darren Hinch, who probably no one in the US would even know him. But um, Darren Hinch also, he used to take a lot of issues and put them on the radio, even to the point that sometimes he'd get arrested. Like, for example, he'd mention someone whose court case was suddenly, you know, was, was currently in the courts. And in Australia, there's very strict laws. It's very different to the US. If someone's before the courts, you sort of can't get on the radio and say like, oh, this guy's as guilty as hell. You can't really do that in Australia. And he used to do stuff like that and he'd get arrested. And sometimes he'd go to jail for like three or four days. And as a result would also then give the case more um, credibility or his issue more credibility. So I felt in a way that there was a little bit of that in the way, in the way that we, way that we wrote it. But I think as always, Bill just brings, brings his own understanding and conceptualization of the characters, you know, um, to the movie, and I think that that's you know something that's so strong about what what Bill does, and I also say since he's here too, because I mean I totally believe it. Same with Trista, you know, just just bringing, you know, just totally inhabiting the character, the pulse of the character. You can smell the blood of the character, the breath of the character, everything, you know, with these with these two actors, like they're just um, you know two two extraordinary actors. So I'm very. Um, humbled and proud to work with. Uh, how about you, uh, Bill? Was there anyone you listened to to try to uh, get into the role? Yes. Uh, very early Larry King on the radio. He wasn't a caricature yet. He wasn't as growly, and he had an extremely natural cadence where you really felt in the very early days that you were listening to him uh, across the dinner table. So that's what I, at first, and I was completely wrong. My first instincts are always wrong. I thought, oh, he's like a bombastic Rush Limbaugh type, but he, he wasn't that at all. What Mark just described, you, you really, it's, it's, you, he's just talking to you as if you're sitting with him in his grief. Uh, and that's what it felt like to me. The whole movie felt like sitting with someone in their grief and they're just going to say what they're going to say. And there's not a damn thing you can do, but listen. That's what it felt like to me. But yeah, um, early... Early Radio Larry King was sort of my delivery model. Interesting. Uh, Trista, do you have another question? I sure do. This is a bit of a spoiler, but Mark has a cameo in the film, which was super fun for me to watch. So I'd like to know how that came about. 
Ah, super fun in a sadistic way because you figure, oh, there goes Mark in, onto his back into the water. <laughs> yeah, um, I ended up doing that simply because I really couldn't convey, I felt at the time, I couldn't convey to anyone else um, exactly how I wanted that done. So I didn't really want to put anyone else through that. So that's why I figured that, um, yeah, I'm going to do that particular stunt myself, falling in, on my back into the water wearing a suit. You'd mentioned um, one of the, um, I believe it was Michael Savage was like a right wing um, yeah. guy. But I liked about the movie is the, the politics of the movie is pretty ambiguous. Yes. And, uh, yes. I think that was good because it does. Otherwise, you're going to split the audience, especially today. Oh, yeah. You're already well, asking yeah. other questions. So no, I think that would we, muddle it. We definitely talked about that because um, essentially the opioid issue is something that, that just affects everybody. And I think people on both sides of the, um, you know, the left and right, I don't think anyone is happy with the way that the opioid industry has kind of, um, you know, um, you know, exploited and, 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 and manipulated to basically make profits at the cost of people's lives. And, um, and I, and I'd say also the fact that it's gone on for so long is that um, both parties um, have made legislation and have um, not really for a long time, didn't do anything about this happening. You know, that it, so it wasn't a left, it wasn't a right issue. It was really just an issue of politicians overall, you know, until, you know, a lot of people started dying and it started getting more attention. There just wasn't a lot done. Even there was just a documentary on HBO, um, an Alex Gibney documentary on this very issue as well um, that was just came out last weekend. Yeah, I mean, they talk about how often, you know, there was actual lobbyists who would lobby certain people, um, you know, in the Senate to... Um, you know, to just simply make it easier to access this, easier to access drugs in um, in areas where where people were actually cracking down on them. You know, like oh, they're cracking down on it, so let's make it even easier to get. And that was something that was um, that was a problem. Um, yeah, it wasn't left, and it wasn't it wasn't left all right, um, um, one or the other. It was both. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody, everybody kind of let it happen until the numbers got so high, until you're starting to get into hundreds of thousands of people dead. That's when something started to be done about it. And uh, to me, a lot of things like that shouldn't even be politicized. Everyone should, you know, want er- certain yep. things that should be universal that everyone would want. Um, totally agree. Uh, Trista's back here. Trista, welcome back. Did you have another question? Hi, sorry I missed that. Did, were you just dying to jump into a body of water? Is that what you <laughs> um, yeah. you were? Uh, no, um, it was more just. Um, it was more that we were kind of a little bit time crunched on that day. The sun was going down, and I had almost said earlier on, "Well, I'm not sure who's going to do that," but um, it got to that point when there was simply a certain way I wanted to have someone fall into the water. And we didn't have a specific stunt person there to do it. And this character, which is played by me, was someone who hadn't been seen in any other scene. And that's why I just kind of thought, oh, what the hell? I'll do it. Because also I figured that, um, you know, the water was cold, pretty uncomfortable. I thought that, um, well, it's, uh, I'm going to do it. So then I'm not, I'd rather do it. Um, yes, I have to do it a few times. That's fine. Rather than put some other poor, poor soul soul through it when um, the day was nearly over, the shoot was nearly over. And I think we'd almost pretty much done our like 10, 11 hour day already. Uh, Bill, had you worked with Michael Perret before? No, I haven't worked with Perret before. Um, 
he's he has the aura of a uh, old-fashioned Hollywood action star to me. He really knows, you know, he knows fights, he knows squibs, and uh, he certainly could have ripped me apart many times and put me back together in interesting ways had he chosen to. He's a really tough guy physically and um, an intense presence in a scene. I, I completely enjoyed the scene where we got to duel back and forth verbally. Um, but yeah, I, I loved working with Michael. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did he get involved, uh, Mark? Um, I'd met him a couple of years earlier on the set of another film and uh, we exchanged numbers and, you know, I said I was a fan of his and we stayed in touch for, you know, like we were in touch for a couple of years and every now and then, you know, he'd say, oh, you know, what are you working on at the moment? And it finally, you know, came up that was working on this and I thought, well, he'd be ideal for this because he's very good at kind of moving between kind of like being sort of like fairly um, fairly nasty, then back to being charming again. And so that early, there's an early scene in the film where you see him as three different people. He's like the very charming doctor. Then there's a young woman comes into the office and um, he exchanges some sexual favours for some drugs. Then his girlfriend comes in. Then he switches back to like romantic kind of like Don Juan, Don Juan sort of role. I think that's what he does really well. Like he's very good at being able to move through those different variations of con- those different shades from kind of like, you know, um, white, you know, white to black to gray. Does it kind of effortless- effortlessly and, you know, sort of can make it look sort of like easy. But um, yeah, I mean, that kind of character I think needed a certain charm to him because he's, he is a doctor and most, most doctors, anyway, anyone that are successful are able to be quite charming but at the same time, also, you also need someone who is, I kind of wanted people to also see that he's not just an out and out kind of like demon. You know, he's, 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 this not, this, he's not just a demonic doctor, that he's also got some real world issues as well. You know, he's got some real world issues going on with his, um, his fiance, you know, his uh, fiance, you know, and he's also got real world issues going on with people coming in, asking him for some drugs, real world issues going on with his partners who want him to, um, you know, get a, you know, get a signature on a patent. And he's also got some real serious real world issues going on with his father, you know, which is kind of like a pretty major part of this, that in a way he's, he's in a sense emotionally handicapped by his father. And, and it's almost like it's so dominant in his life that it's, it's almost, um, it's almost paralyzed him. And I figured, yeah, Michael can play that. And, According to Michael, anyway, what he said to me, he said that was one of the things that he really liked about it, that he's kind of like he's playing many shades, many shades of one of one person that seemed to be what appealed to him. Interesting. And I, I know you and Bill worked a lot together. So when did that start? And when did you you know realize that this is, you know, there was chemistry there and it, this was a guy you like to work with? Oh, do you want to answer that first, Bill? I'm unmuting because the dog is barking. Thank you, dog. It's quiet now. We met at Dark Delicacies uh, Bookshop in Burbank. And uh, from the moment I met Mark, I knew that he was weird. And I liked it. And then um, I sat with him, I think, in the Bourgeois Pig, I think, or maybe the restaurant next door uh, near my place in Hollywood. And we watched. Okay, we watched on a laptop. He showed me clips from some of his films and I watched the ones that I could and I was further drawn in 
uh, and then he had me over to his place and blew my mind by showing me some um, great uh, Japanese revenge films that I was completely unaware of, a film called Angst, a German film, all this stuff that really resonated. Like, you know, I, I do a lot of conventional stuff and I'm happy to have the work. But what Mark was showing me and offering me the promise of was doing something that was fierce, dark, and artistic, like really using cinema as an art form. And so that's why I just glommed onto him and, and gravitated to him. And I've told Mark this before. I'll say it now. I would be really happy for the rest of my career, whatever it is, to just make movies with Mark Savage. I swear to God. Oh, thanks, Bill. That's too kind. Well, I kind of feel the same way, you know, because uh, Bill and I also, we also formed a, a friendship based on also our love of circuses. And freaks, like, of course, Todd Browning's Freaks, The Unholy Three, The Unknown, films like that. And also, um, just like a, um, I also think I also brought along a book and showed Bill some artwork from some, I think I think I, I got a very rare Japanese um, picture book of really interesting old Japanese circus art. I think I brought along some of that and showed that to him. And then um, I then also wrote a script very much inspired sort of like by that, which Bill and I um, are going to do eventually called Circus of Dread. And I could even say right now that it's getting very, very close to that happening because um, I've had very good news even in the last month. It's getting getting closer and closer. Um, so it's, um, yeah, that I just think, yeah, it's, it's good to, it's good to um, collaborate with people you really kind of like see eye to eye on. I mean, I could also say too, um, that even same with Trista, I kind of felt a very felt a very similar kind of um, connection. And she's also uh, weird. Yeah. Talk to her, yeah. That sort of, I guess that that's that love of the weird was kind of like what we um, all kind of had in common. But I think that's a thing that when you're making movies, that you look at a film like Ed Wood, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. One of the things I love most about that movie is about it celebrates the idea of working with it is working with your kind of weird outsider friends you know like to me this is nothing better than that and because and also because when you are an outsider all your life you often do feel a little bit lonely and alienated so that when you do meet people who share this and, and you're brought together by especially brought together by art the creation of you know a film or a play or i guess even music but in our case it's film you know, this is something so kind of embracing about that to be working with people who you don't have to explain yourself because usually you're used to being around people who kind of go like with me growing up, I was always a show and tell guy at school, but I was also the guy too, kind of like, Oh my God, what else have you got? Or kind of like, Oh my God. You know, I, I was always feeling, Oh, you're that weird guy. And it also, to some extent, sometimes almost becomes like a little bit of a diminishment of what you do. You know, like it's kind of like, oh, yeah, you're that guy who does that. But when you're around weird people, the guy that does that is like suddenly you're around people who at least value what you do in the same way that just because we want to make stuff with weirdness doesn't mean in a way it's any less legit than someone who wants to make, you know, a Disney movie. You know, in the sense that to me it's, it's all important. You know, there's nothing to me, there's no bad subject matter in the sense like, which I also don't really subscribe to the idea of high art and low art and stuff. Like to me, it's either, it's, it's either good or bad, you know? And I mean, even a porno film can be art, you know, like the, the, the whole point is it's all how something's done, 
you know, it's the way it's, it's, I think it's the approach, it's the aesthetics and what's go, it's what went into it. That um, that's why it's great. Like, um, yeah, Bill and I just completely connected on like that. And also um, with Trista, I felt the same way, you know, it's, it's that, that connection in the dark of the darkness and of what, I guess what other people call more weird, but in a way that's more a judgment of others on the outside. Cause to us, that's more our norm. Mm-hmm. I completely understand. Excellent answer. Uh, Trista, do you have a question? I do. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how to follow that. I, I could listen to you talk for a really long time, Mark, but you know that I love listening to <laughs> you, you talk. So my question, I guess, is I, I know that the film was very personal and um, inspired by uh, tragedy and time. I'm also wondering what kind of research is required to write a script like that. Sorry about my internet connection. I hope you can hear me. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, we mostly did a lot of research. Um, so a lot of medical papers, a lot of um, also internet stories, but more detailed internet stories, like larger articles so we could get like statistics, um, sort of get a firm grip on, a lot of the strategies that the opioid industry, the pharmaceutical industry uses. Um, so watched a few documentaries, read some papers from the American Medical Journal, you know, that kind of stuff, like fairly detailed. Some of it was very dry, but very, but, but very, very helpful. And because the important thing in this was that, um, you know, it, it was to at least try to understand the motivations of for the farmer industry, you know, obviously motivated money being their main motivation, but to understand then the methods that they employed um, to do that, but also how some of the methods also kind of dis- disenfranchise good doctors. Like, for example, before the shooting started, I was going to a, I was going to a coffee shop um, not too far away from where I was staying um, near Tom's house. And, at one point, I kept talking to a guy, the guy who was a manager of the coffee shop, really nice guy. And one day he said to me, well, you're clearly not from around here. And, um, and he said to me, uh, what are you doing around here? And I said, uh, making a film. And he said, oh, a film, what, what's it about? Anyway, I said it was an opioid-themed film. I told him a little bit about it. And he said to me, you know, sort of very calmly, but at the same time, there was a bit of pain in his eyes. He said to me, I was a doctor. And I said, oh, um, were you involved with um, what, what with, with this this side of the business? Like, were you mean opioids? He goes, no, no. He goes, I wouldn't prescribe opioids, and I lost my business. So he said, that's why I own a coffee shop now. He goes, I went to another business. He goes, because I lost ninety percent of my patients because it got to a point where all people were coming in was all they were doing was asking me, "Can you please write a prescription?" And he'd say to him, eventually. I can't just write you prescriptions just because you ask. You're like, you've got to be exhibiting symptoms. And their attitude was, fine, we'll go to someone else. So he essentially lost his livelihood as a, as a GP because he wouldn't, write, he wouldn't write opioid prescriptions. So that in itself I thought was one of the best pieces of research um, because it was, a, it, was, it was a real case of how, you know, the, the honest doctors um, who, you know, who didn't um, see you know, the op- opioids as an incredible opportunity to get rich, um, a lot of them lost lost their livelihood, which was, you know, pretty terrifying. Um, so did, 
was Tom uh, on hands a lot when you're editing the film since it's so personal to him? Um, not for the editing in terms of like the first cutting of it, but, you know, I, I, I work with uh, an editor, Chris Roth. Um, Chris Roth has um, worked with him on several movies. Um, Chris is a you know, great guy. He's edited a lot of movies, even even movies like even did Killer Clowns from Outer Space. That's one of his. Um, that's one of his earlier movies. And um, Crying Freeman, and um, he's done a does, does a lot of work. So Chris and I would work on the different cuts, but Tom would be looking at the cuts, you know, and he and um and I'd say you know what do you think? He'd give notes sometimes, and you know just to make sure that um you know it was kind of like true to you know how he envisioned certain things. But I mean. He didn't have a lot of notes um, or changes. I mean, because you know, he and I had already written the script and the cut is fairly close to the script. Not a lot changed. I mean, we didn't shoot a lot of fat on this film. I mean, sometimes, you know, you end up shooting a film where, like, even Stress to Kill, we shot the original cut of Stress to Kill was something like 135 minutes. And we cut it down to like something like 96 minutes. So you go, gee, what happened to the 39 minutes there? You know, like it means we had a lot of scenes that we shot that actually didn't make it. And on this one, there were almost no scenes that didn't make it, which is probably also that we probably did a better job of pre-editing the script and maybe being a little tighter with our script because it's not really a good thing to to spend time and effort on scenes that aren't going to make it. And especially because often the reason why you're going to cut something is because you go, well, it's redundant. You know, we already make this point in this, this, and this scene here. So why do we need this? Um, at the time, though, sometimes you 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 may not have a full grasp of, uh, you might think, well, it's there for another reason. But the interesting thing about cutting, it's not just about, you know, one scene. It's about what comes before and what comes after. And often you'll find that the order of scenes or the way scenes play against each other suddenly negates a scene you might have had there. You think this is really important, but then you may decide, you know something, we don't even need that scene anymore because those previous three scenes have made the point that we're making more explicitly in the fourth scene. So you cut it out. But yeah, Tom was definitely involved in the note process, in the comment process, but it was pretty much um, me over Zoom working with working with Chris, doing most of the, doing most of the, um, the the main cutting, which after that then went to Australia for the 4K conform and the CGI and the color grade. Uh, what did Tom think of the finished movie? Yeah, I think um, he said that he cried when he watched it, you know, for the first time. And uh, especially also when um, his son's picture came up at the end of the movie, um, his son Jordan um, is the first thing that you see um, when we basically um, fade to black and fade up as a credits roll. Uh, yeah, he was pretty emotional. He was very emotional. And I think he was emotional for quite a number of screenings and actually still is. He still shows it to different people even now. And, um, you know, I know he has very difficult days still, you know, where it's, it's, it's like almost unbearable. And obviously, you know, that kind of grief is not something that ever, it never leaves you. Um, you have to somehow work out a way to, you know, accommodate it, you know, accommodate a loss like that into your life. But, you know, obviously clearly the, clearly the pain, the pain remains. Um, and Bill, what did you think of the finished movie? Well, I didn't watch it until we started doing our interviews because I don't like to watch myself and I'm in this movie a lot. Um, but I did manage to watch it and uh, I was similarly moved 
when Jordan's picture came up on the screen. Um, I, I, I liked the movie. I thought it was very effective. And uh, I think it was a wise idea for Tom and Mark not to put that dedication to Tom's son at the beginning, because that would have provided a lens through which you see everything. But it was it was kind of a gut punch at the end to have watched the whole thing and maybe enjoyed the, the uh, uh, vigilante um uh, you know, uh, to have lived vicariously through him. Yeah, I'd like to kill some people and had a little fun with that and got the message. And then to get the end and to see that young man's face and to realize, oh, that's where this came from. I thought it was very subtle and a very good placement. Mm-hmm. And I've had multiple people that I've done interviews with say that, that they didn't know the story behind the film. Yeah, I didn't know either. Until they saw the dedication and it hit them in the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, did COVID uh, affect um, shooting the movie and how it was released? It didn't affect shooting it because we actually shot in um, in the January just before. Uh, sorry, like we're pre-producing in the January and then into the February we were shooting the movie. So it finished just before COVID was announced, you know, just before like lockdowns announced. So it didn't affect the shoot. It impacted the post somewhat, but not much because, you know, post is a fairly solitary process. So when you're doing it, like it's me, you know, getting the getting the drives and the footage to the editor and it's either I'm sitting with the editor after they do a cut and then making changes and making notes and making adjustments. But it's it's it was able to, we're able to basically move to Zoom. So I was in often sometimes spending hours and hours with the editor just over Zoom. He's where he is, was he was up in Burbank and I was here down in, um, you know, in Laguna just doing the, doing the cutting. And so it didn't really impact it. And the same with the sound. Like once we had the lock cut from that, the lock cut then went to Sweden for the music, for Glenn to do the music, and then went to um, our, 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 um, our sound the sound company, um, Queen and Enhanced Media, they then did that. So both of them took about eight weeks to work on, um, you know, respect, respect, respectively the, the sound and the music. And at the same time, my guy in Australia then did all the conform. And the only thing that took a long time was initially I sent, like, the drives to Australia and they still hadn't even gotten there in seven weeks. So I was like, oh, my God, what's going on? So I then um, um, sent them there in a different way, like with a courier, with a different type of courier. So was a, that was a bit of a concern. I mean, we had copies of the movie. It's not like we, we, had, we, like we had the film, like four copies of it. But, yeah, that didn't really, that didn't really impact it. So, so in a sense, we're able to, able to do it mostly through, through that, um, that, that lockdown. But, um, yeah, it wouldn't have been would have been impossible to um yeah to do any any additional shooting which we didn't do we didn't do any any pickups or anything like that uh tristy another question yes we touched on um how we all have darker more eccentric artistic but delirium specifically and you guys specialize in oh um Sorry, Trista, you, you yeah, broke you up, up there. Bit. I didn't know if everyone I didn't quite hear your full question. Yeah. Sorry, guys. I've not had this problem before. Thanks for bearing with me. Um, no Mark, can you can you talk a little bit more about delirium and what you guys specialize in and what you have uh, coming up? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, like Tom and I 
Tom and I do the, um, yeah, delirium was to kind of like do stories. Yeah, I mean, certainly do stories that kind of mutually, that mutually interested us. The first one being Stress to Kill. Um, then, of course, Purgatory Road, which I believe you would, you've heard of that film. Um, and um, then also and we had, um, we, also, we also had, yes, then of course, Painkiller. Yeah, look, I would just say if there's anything maybe that it may be doing a little bit different is that, um, the stories are mostly about um, probably like slightly older characters, you know, not so much, you know, teenage-oriented kind of like thrillers and horror films. It's more maybe a little bit like kind of older characters and, um, you know, more representative perhaps of Tom, you know, more representative to some extent of, um, um, of, of Tom and I. But, yeah, I mean, it's mostly dealing with, I mean, I think mostly dealing with themes, I guess, in a way that we often debate, you know, like the first one was us getting pissed off about things like, yeah, texting in movies and general rudeness. And then with Purgatory Road, it was about our debates about, um, you know, religion, you know, the whole idea of faith, you know, faith, what it is, and people who sometimes, you know, misrepresent themselves, um, you know, um, how religion can also be, you know, used in a, in a, you know, to misrepresent, you know, as well as for some people, it's also very positive. So I think we, we have a lot of debate, a lot of philosophical discussions. So I think often the movies kind of reflect the philosophical discussions that we had. We're working on a new one at the moment called um, um, Home, Home Wreckers. And Home Wreckers is kind of like about the, you know, in a way like the, um, the you know, the, the idea that, well, you've got something, so I should be allowed to have that too. It's kind of like dealing with that, that kind of mentality of, um, you know, that whole thing of, and which our society in a way is very split at the moment, you know, um, and, it, and kind of very split economically. So then, so that's kind of what the film's dealing with. But so, yeah, I mean, Home Wreckers is probably going to be the next one that we will, that we will do together. And then we definitely would like to do a, a sequel um, to Painkiller as well and extend out the storyline of, of, um, of Bill and Tom, because without giving it away, there is a, um, there is a suggestion um, near the end of the movie that Bill and Tom will um, continue. Bill and Tom will continue on, and then outside that, yeah, I mean, I also like um, like on on other things. Um, uh, yeah, I'm also working on something with another producer at the moment, Mark Lester and Jeff Miller. A film I'm shooting in a month, almost. I think it's exactly a month from now. I'm shooting that in New York, in New York, called um, a Bring Bring Him Back Dead. That's the next one um, that I'm doing, and then I've I've got a, quite a few things on at the moment. Don't want to jinx it too much by by saying, and and, and also I still want to keep developing a few other stories. Um, even one I had mentioned at you at some point, um, Trista, a vampire story. So I'd love to keep um, follow that up once the uh, all the restrictions on um, shooting and all that have fallen by the wayside. Good, and uh, Bill, uh, what do you have coming up? Um, I'm going to Romania to play Adolf Hitler. Really? In a film which is called The Message. And um, it's a joint Romanian-United States production. It's about the complicity of the uh, occupied Romanian government and how much they wanted, how much they felt they had to um, cooperate with the Nazis. Um, And so actually they contacted me about another role and uh, I read the script. And I just decided to be bold. And I went back to it and I said, you know, um, I could do the other role, but I've done that a lot. What I'm really interested in is Hitler. And so we started talking 
and did some look tests and um, I was surprised they attached me as Hitler. So I'm into that now. And um, yeah, I'm going down to Mexico to do a movie called Dead Iris, which is about the uh, Mexican sweat lodge culture and the belief, the ancient belief, which goes back to the Aztecs, that in the sweat lodge, you can, through mysticism, contact dead people, that it can be a portal between the two worlds. And it's made by a young director named Adrian Corona, with whom I did an art house film I dearly love called Dis, which is extreme, offensive, nonlinear, and you either love it or hate it. It's my kind of movie. So I'm sure Dead Iris would be the same. And, uh, and I love working in Mexico and I love working in Eastern Europe. So two movies coming up in places that I really, really like to work. And I respect the crew and the people in both of these places. Very cool. I'm looking forward to uh, both of those. So um, Painkiller, it's out now. Uh, everywhere you get movies, pretty much, you can get it. And um, we didn't talk too much about vigilantes, but I always like this kind of story where as an audience member, you, you, you know, you question yourself if, uh, you know, is it right to root for someone, you know, who's, who's doing something like this. So I hope people uh, check it out. Painkiller. And thank, thank you guys you for doing All right. Well, thanks thank guys. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll talk to you all soon. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for having us. Bye. From ancient terrors to the search for modern day conspiracies, the tomb of Nick Cage is the new sound in horror rock. Uncover the mystery of old world horror for the new world order on iTunes, Amazon, and more. The tomb of Nick Cage. Find out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Tomb of Nick Cage. <laughs> <laughs>